0: card by card podcast the first and only podcast covering Atari's last answer the 8-bit gaming system in episode 14 we serve up a bit of surf and turf first we put everything at stake by entering the battle zone then we find out if the submarine simulator gato is a fresh catch now here are your hosts david and michael
1: Hi everybody, it's great to be back. Michael and I are back finally. I know it's been quite a hiatus since we last heard from us, but we are here. And since we've been away a while, we have a lot of news to go through. So let's take a look and see what's going on in the world of our beloved Atari 8-bits. So here's some pretty awesome news. Thomas Cherry Holmes, the guy behind Irata.line, has been working with many people to bring us FujiNet formerly known as Atari Wi-Fi. What is Fujinet? Get ready to have your minds blown because it is big. It's an Arduino-based microcontroller device that attaches to the SIO peripheral port of an Atari 8-bit system that has built-in Wi-Fi. But that's not all. By connecting through the TNFS, or Tiny Network File Systems, it can emulate a cassette and up to eight floppy drives that can mount ATR disk images, provide a virtual Wi-Fi modem, print to a printer. There is even an N device aka new device for establishing TCP and UDP communications with other hosts. Thomas said one of the main factors in the creation of this is to allow people to connect to his pet project, IRETA, online. There is also a plan to provide more functionality via over-the-air updates. Since anyone can host a TNFS server, this means you can access files from anywhere as long as you have a network connection and have an address to connect to. There have also been successful tests of data transfer speeds of up to 125,984 Bits per second. To be specific. (laughs) Yeah, to be specific. Since the typical SIO speeds is 19.2 bits per second, I think we can see an advantage here. There was also some discussion about providing an onboard storage via SD card. Additionally, some models have SIO pass-throughs, so it doesn't have to be the last device in the DAISY chain. Very cool. Things are still being developed, but Thomas hopes that they'll be able to start selling devices by the end of 2020. He didn't give a price but said it would be comparable to the S Drive Max. Since the S Drive Max is mostly an Arduino with a touchscreen, let's estimate that it could cost anywhere between 30 to 50 US dollars. That's a pretty amazing price. Yeah. This won't replace cartridge devices though. Past XEGS host Bill Kendrick has been tasked with documenting what they are doing and he's been given a Mars bar, ACA revision 3 of the device. Since Bill did a phenomenal job at documentation for the show, I think they chose the right person. Bill's first stab at it has been adding some info to the project's wiki page, uh, which is named What is Fujinet? We'll provide a link in the show notes. Looks like Video 61 is now selling Nova Wolf for $40. We have posted a preview of the game on our Facebook page back in May. This homebrew was developed by Peter J. Meyer, designed by Lance Rinquist, and graphics by Artisan21. Both Peter and Lance have posted videos on YouTube. If you want to check out the gameplay, just do a search for Nova Wolf. So Michael, what have you been up to?
0: Well, as you mentioned, it's been uh, some time since we last uh, had a show, and I've had a ton of stuff to cover. Uh, for first thing, um, I took a last-minute trip down to the Portland Retro Gaming Convention. Uh, this was actually my first time going, and I sat in mostly with the speakers and stuff to hear what they had to say. Uh, I get a chance to shake hands with uh, Howard Scott Warshaw. He had actually, a long time ago, well, not too long ago, about six months ago, uh, was getting a bunch of crap about ET once again, and so I kind of did a photoshop thing. And he actually reached out to me and said, can you use this for his, uh, his upcoming book? And so, um, unfortunately, um, I didn't I didn't make all the image. I basically just borrowed images and put them all together. And so, uh, I don't think he's going to be able to use it. But um, I just wanted to ask him if he was planning on doing it. And he said, he remembered me and, uh, you know, said thank you very much. So, it was nice to talk to him. And then um, also uh, talked to Ed uh, Rotberg. He's the creator of the Arcade Battle Zone it was funny because we were sitting in one of the um, Q and A's and it was between me and my friend asking the last question and he picked me. And so afterwards he walked up to both of us after, uh, after this Q and A and, and apologized for not being able to take both of our questions and, So it was really nice of him to do that. And I got a picture with him or anything like that. So uh, I wish I had uh, more time to walk around and check out more of the homebrews. But I uh, did have a long conversation with Todd Fermansky, who made his first 2600 game, Dragon's Descent, which is kind of a mix of Berserk and Adventure. Um, Also, Todd teaches game design uh, by day and has provided a talk on YouTube where he discusses the creation of Dragon's Descent. We'll put a link in the show notes so you can watch that. Also saw Nathan Strum, the game designer for the amazing 2600 version of Galaga. Unfortunately, he was speaking with someone else, so I gave him the thumbs up while pointing at his game, which was on display. What I didn't remember to look for and did make an appearance was uh, Magical Fairy Force, the 5200 game that you, did, David, mentioned in our last episode. Also, uh, some familiar faces were there, like our old pal and co-host Bill Kendrick. Uh, and Kevin Savitz of the Antic Podcast. Kevin was also uh, on one of the panel discussions with the legends David Crane and Joe DeCurr. Since Joe lives in my neck of the woods, we've spoken a few times, and uh, he's a very interesting and the nicest guy. I also currently have his um, oscilloscope. He let me, let me uh, borrow it for a little bit to do some work on something I'll mention later. Um, the PRGC website also stated the author Jamie Lendino and Paul Westphill of 8-Bit Fix were supposed to be on the panel, but they were missing the action. Uh, I also had a nice chat with Bill Lang, who I'd never met before. Bill is uh, well-known on the Atari age and publishes a physical and electronic magazine, Old School Gamer. Link to his site is in the show notes. Also, some of you might remember, uh, a co-worker of mine brought in one of those uh, Flashback 8 Golds that plays many of the 2600 games. So I started a weekly video game challenge for... um, for just some fun at the workplace. Well, we made it through the entire set of games, uh, at least the ones that we could uh, kind of uh, use for the challenge. So I brought in um, uh, my Raspberry Pi, installed RetroPie on it. We've been playing um, arcade games now uh, every week. Uh, Of course, uh, that's on hold right now due to uh, not going to work for some time. (laughs) Um, So um, now David, prepare yourself because I have to say three letters that you might trigger you. I've been trying to fix my boss's NES. Since this is <laughs> that was coming. <laughs> I know this is a part Atari podcast. I won't go into um, great detail, my experiences, but I'll just tell you this. Um, I, when I, I took this job on, I should have done a little bit of research before I started doing things. And I found that um, if I had done that, I might've saved myself some time, but basically this has been an extreme challenge and I've learned quite a bit about the system. And as you can see by our, as I said before, I borrowed um, uh, an oscilloscope so I could actually figure out what's going on because it's gotten down to that point where I got to use tools I haven't used in 30-some years. So, <laughs> But hopefully I get success. I'm I'm definitely dedicated to getting this thing fixed. As far as acquisitions go, a local Well, guy, uh, before what? you oh, uh, yeah.
1: continue on, I just wanted to say there is a surefire way of getting the that NES. Mm-hmm back uh, to uh, what I would consider um, its proper operating uh, uh, functionality yeah uh, throw it out of a 10 story window <laughs> uh, no- okay oh continue
0: yes yes continue yeah. on and would, you
1: know what? what there's plenty of nes podcasts if you want to listen to i don't know why you'd want to listen to them but there's plenty of them so. <laughs> i just need to
0: listen to one that says how to fix your um your nes because yeah, i and, and yeah. only
1: in limited quantities
0: well you'd be amazed at what i've what i've gone through to get this thing up and running and um and i've talked to people that do repair these things if it was an atari
1: it'd be so much easier oh. to fix oh so simple i've got i've got hey
0: i've got those to fix too as well <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great learning experience. And I just look at it like, uh, yeah, I'm spending a lot of time, but I'm getting the skills. So anyway, uh, as far as acquisitions go, um, a local guy was selling a bunch of stuff he acquired from somebody else. So what I got was an Ultima 4 uh, game with cloth map and manuals, uh, text adventure deadline complete. I played this when I was a kid and um, it's, I wanted the complete thing. I'll probably just... Um, Put both on display. i probably not play those. Uh, you know, I'll just play them as far as, a, you know, if I've got a ROM or something like that. I also got a, a 1030 modem in a box, which will look nice next to my 800XL. And I put a bunch of capacitors to storing some of my, uh, my retro hardware. And for Christmas, because it's been that long, uh, Santa brought me a few items. I got a VBXE, an ultimate one megabyte for my 800XL. I previously ordered a dual Pokey card, so we need to install three of those. Also, i a got um, a faux leather cover for my 800 with a little red lettering on it. Uh, it says 800. Sitting right here. Keep the dust off and the sunlight out. And I also got a Atari t-shirt. So, um, got a nice variety of stuff from Santa. So, David, what about you? What have you been up to?
1: Now, of course, I had a few updates myself, and they are not NES related. Thank you. Okay. Okay, so let's start here. Well, first I want to give a shout-out to Ed Kelly of Ed Edladen Controllers. He makes some of the best arcade-style controllers for our beloved retro 8-bit computers and consoles. Thankfully not NES. And the one that I'm waiting for in anticipation is the Super 52 controller for the Atari 5200. It has a self-centering Hall Effect analog stick plus a spinner that will also double as a paddle as well. On our next episode of the Atari 5200 podcast, we will be announcing our winner of the modded VCS paddle that works with the Atari 5200. As you were mentioning, Michael, you were at PRGE uh, last year, and uh, you were talking about an awesome game, Galagon, for the 2600. So I did pick up from uh champ games while my co-host bob of the atari 200 podcast was in attendance and he did pick up copies signed copies for me of wizard of war and galagon for the 2600 by champ games and both are must buys i also played a great version of bosconian for the xc xl line that came out way back, but as the Zegs only has 64K, it had no voice. Since the 5200 version just came out recently for the Atari Max cart, it does include voice. There is a 130XE version that we will have to get Michael to try and tell us what he thinks, since I don't own an Atari uh, 130XE, but I believe that one has uh, voice. So it needs the extra 64 for the uh, extra voice. I would I would assume. Yeah. Hmm. Is that on one of your two fixed lists? No, my my 130 xe works fine. Excellent. Pair that up with the ultimate cart. That's right. And uh, let us know how, how that works out for you. Well, I love Bosconian. I know. I used to play that in the arcade. Yep. <laughs> um, that's why I had to. That's why I had to get. Uh, I had to get the, the prior game that was called Draconian. Oh, really? That Yeah, Draconian, it came out for the 2600, and if I remember correctly, it has voice. Oh, cool. As well, on the 2600.
0: Wow, that's impressive. Yes,
1: you you got to keep up with the 2600. Forget about the NES. Forget about the NES. Everything you need is on the 2600. That's
0: funny that the 2600, with the little memory it has, it must have a lot of memory on the card or something because... It does. does, Yeah, I was
1: going to (laughs) say. But don't forget, the NES cheated. It was a cheat from day one. Okay. It it cheated in the carts that had extra chips in there for extra processing power. It was a cheat. Okay.
0: You sound like you sound like Bill hating on the
1: sixty-four. Sixty four is okay. Anyway. I recently picked up a collector vision Phoenix Adam style. This is an FPGA implementation of the ColecoVision that also plays Atari 2600 games. It uses an SD card to store the ROMs. So you just pick your core, ColecoVision or Atari 2600, and load up the game ROM of your choice. They are taking orders for a second run, which is most likely their last run. So if you're interested and you have $200 burning a hole in your pocket... Run on over and get your pre order in. I also want to give a big thanks to Willie of Arcade USA. He modded my Atari 5200 trackball and added a spinner. Now I don't have to be envious of all the people who have Tempest from Video 61 for their Atari 8 bits that allows them to play uh, that game using the Atari 2600 driving paddle. Addendum and errata. When we reported the price of Dark Chambers in our last episode, we said that Video sixty one had the price listed at twenty nine ninety five American in box. Now it seems the price is now listed at ninety nine ninety five. Yep. Hopefully we didn't originally read the pricing correctly, but all prices and quantities are subject to change. It's very true.
0: <laughs> so We have our first game review. It's Battlezone. It was published by Atari in 1987. The model number is RX8077. It's a first-person tank combat shooter. It was developed by Ken Rose. number of players one Plus, it's also got a demo mode, and the controller is a joystick. So, from the back of the box, we have Battlezone. Defend the Earth against a vicious fleet of space invaders. It's 1999, and all the nations of Earth have agreed to world peace. Hmm, we're missing... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of missed that missed that boat, didn't we? um but power hungry rebels have sent out a huge fleet of robot war machines. These pitiless machines will annihilate the planet and turn it into a lifeless landscape. They must be stopped. It's up to you to save the world. The one defense left on earth is a vintage military tank. It's your only hope for searching out enemy machines and destroying them. outmaneuver and defeat rebel super tanks and flying saucers. Watch your radar, listen for enemy fire, take evasive action behind futuristic objects, maintain your nerves of steel. Your tank can maneuver in every direction and turn a full 360 degrees. The cockpit computer displays a radar scanner and strategic defense information. You can triumph. You must, because the future of the planet depends upon your agility, skill, and defiance. Five skill levels challenge even the most sophisticated tank commander. Let's talk about how to play the game. At the title screen, you're greeted with Atari Corporation Presents Battle Zone, with the game's name in that colorful Atari Fuji rainbow effect. You also have a side angle of a wireframe tank with the copyright info at the bottom. Wait for about 10 seconds and the game will go into the game demo mode. After the demo tank gets destroyed three times, the game will go back to the title screen. As far as the levels go, the game starts at level 1. You cycle through up to five levels using the option key and pressing the start or fire button will start the game. Your controls, as I mentioned before, were, was a joystick. Um, it's pretty obvious, you move forward and back, uh, your tank moves in those directions. Left and right will rotate your tank in those directions. Diagonal positions will apply the two directions at once. For example, you move the stick up and to the left, then you go in the northwest position and it'll take your tank into a forward turn to the left. The fire button will fire your cannons at the location where their gun sights point and they always be at the center of the screen. Pressing the select button will pause resume the game and pressing the option button will end the game. For gameplay, when the game starts, you're immediately thrust into battle. At the top of the screen is your information panel. It is displayed in red. The left side of the panel displays alert message during battle. These messages will tell you if the enemy is in range and what direction it is. Of course, you will have a little circular radar screen, dead center, that gives you a better idea of where exactly your target, target is on the battlefield. A wedge from that circle represents your field of view. The right side shows your score, current high score, and the number of reserve tanks you have left. You start with a total of four tanks. Three are in reserves. The active battlefield is represented in green and occupies more of the remaining lower half of the screen. An audible warning will sound when your enemy tank instantly appears on the screen. Position your tank's gun uh, gun sights on the enemy tank and fire. If you miss, it will take your tank a moment to reload, so try to avoid the enemy tank fire at all costs. There are many geometric shapes, such as rectangles, pyramids, and cubes scattered around. These are indestructible, so retreat behind them when you need a little bit of cover. Don't forget that running is also an option, but don't worry, soon you'll be given another target to engage. Aside from the tank, you have a few other enemies that you'll have to contend with. There is a super tank, which is a much much faster than the regular tank. In fact, it's as fast as you and maybe as smart. Don't underestimate him. Uh, the missile will swoop down from the sky, bobbing and weaving around and over obstacles. There's a chance you might avoid him, but uh, those chances are slim. The saucer is a non combatant and will be sent in as a distraction. Make it pay for its intentional bamboozlement. I like that. Bamboozlement? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, strategy. Keep your eye on your radar. This will tell you where your enemy is at all times, even when you don't see him. Uh, A moving target is hard to hit, so never stay in one place for too long if you can help it. Try to position yourself at angles to avoid enemy fire. Your radar screen can help you with this. If you can get your enemy to fire and miss, that is your chance to take a shot before their weapons recharge. For scoring, the only way to score points in this game is to shoot enemy combatants or non-combatants, which would be the saucer, uh, saucers are worth the most at 5,000 points. Super tanks are worth 4,000 points. Missiles are 2,000 points. And the lowly tank is 1,000 points. And you'll be awarded an extra reserve tank at 15,000 and a hundred thousand points. So as far as history and trivia, let's talk a little bit more about the arcade version, since that's what got us here to begin with. Um, Battlezone was released in uh, November 1980 by Atari Incorporated and is your typical op- upright uh, cabinet orientation. The one unusual feature is that it has a tank periscope that you can look through to view the world drawn in wireframe vector graphics. Although later version removed the periscope allowing spectators a better view of the playfield. Since the vector graphics are only in one color and that's white, green and red overlays were used to provide a little bit of color. Other versions of the cabinet uh, were the cabaret cabinet, which is, has a screen angled upward with no periscope. There was also a cocktail table prototype. This one lacked the overlays since the world would have to flip for the second player. Your tank is controlled with two joysticks. Each controlled, controls the tread on one side of the player's tank. There is a one button on the joystick that fires the tank's cannon. The game earned an honorable mention for Best Commercial Arcade Game in 1982 at the third annual Archie Awards. It was a runner-up behind Pac-Man. Now, some of you who have played the game back then re- remember hearing the military use this as a trainer, and that is actually a fact. It was called the Bradley Trainer, uh, also known as the uh, Army Battlezone or military battle zone and was used in the US Army to train gunners on the Bradley Fighting vehicles. Some programmers, including Ed Rotberg, didn't want to design games for the military use. Uh, Ed was only joined after he was promised by manager that he'd never have to ever work on anything military again. Only two were produced and only one is known to exist under the ownership of a private collector who saved it from the trash. This version of the game featured a more terrestrial invaders uh, vehicles such as helicopters, missiles, and machine guns. Since this was built to train gunners, the vehicle is stationary and only the gun moves. The CPU was a 6502 and used the Pokey for sound. So there's a good chance the XeGS conversion is pretty close to the original. So let's talk about the legacy. Aside from the arcade and the XeGS version, there's also officially released for the Atari 2600s, Atari ST. And Atari Lynx. The Lynx version was titled Battlezone Two Thousand. There's also the Apple II version, Commodore VIC 20, and Commodore 64, IBM PC, ZX Spectrum, and Nintendo Game Boy. There's that word again. <laughs> this is a combo game that also came with Super Breakout. Atari
1: Mini. Also- you know, you were going so well. I was like looking at the list. I was going, "Oh ha, There's no Nintendo, no mention." And then, damn it, it's at the end.
0: <laughs> Slipped it in there.
1: <laughs> I don't
0: have a, well, yes, I do have a Nintendo Game Boy, but... (laughs) Um, Atari Mania also had a version created by Alan Merrill from HomeSoft, and it is dated 2005. This appears to be a German release, and although it has some nice aspects, some polish is still needed, in my opinion. The Atari 5200 port was scheduled for release in November 1983, but was canceled, most likely due to the new owners of Atari discontinuing support, for the Atari 5200 and turning to the 7800 for future console gaming. You can play the prototype ROM on Atari Max cartridge or get a physical cart made. So there's some 5200 talk. What about you, David? You got any insight into this?
1: Of course. Uh, An Atari 5200 port was scheduled for release in November 1983, but was cancelled most likely due to the new owners of Atari discontinuing support for the Atari 5200 and turning to the Atari 7800 for future console gaming. A very big mistake. You can also play the prototype ROM on your Atari Max cart, or you can get a physical cart made from a place such as Atari Age. I think I have seen one for sale on eBay once. I tried it, and I think due to the 5200's analog controller, movement is a bit more smoother. There is a version ported to the XEXL 8-Bits as well. Oh, cool. If you want to give it a try.
0: Sweet. So, in 2008, the updated version of Battlezone was released for the Xbox Live Arcade, featuring a 1080p i graphics, 5.1 Dolby audio, and an online mode allowing two to four players to battle in deathmatch or capture the flag modes, with Xbox Live uh, version support. Vision, sorry, vision support, also known as a webcam. (laughs) Pandemic Studios' first game was an authorized Battlezone game. Which was published by Activision in 1998. This version is more of a complicated tank piloting strategy game and had a sequel a year later. Paradigm Entertainment also released a re imaging of the place for the PlayStation Portable. And in 2013, Rebellion Development bought the Battlezone franchise from Atari's bankruptcy proceedings and in 2016 released it for the PlayStation 4. In 2017, they ported it to the PC. With support for the Oculus Rift, HTC Vive, and the PlayStation VR, which won Best VR of E3 in 2016, I checked it out. It looks it looks awesome. I wish I had wish I had some VR so I could play it. Um, and it kind of it kind of reminds me of the tanks in Tron. It's got the you know kind of glowing edges, and it looks like a blast. So that's quite a legacy for this game, and it really deserves it. Where can you buy this? Uh well, Video sixty one does not have it. Neither does Best Electronics, Bravo Sierra Computers, B and C Computers. The only place I could find it was on eBay, and um, new in box or sealed for about sixty bucks. And Amazon uh, sold by this uh, a company called Classic Game Source Incorporated. They had new in box for fifty eight thirty six, and the price included uh, uh, plus shipping and the estimated tax. So let's go into the reviews. So I'll go with, I'll go first if you don't mind. Um, as a kid, I was a big battle zone fan as one of my favorites. Um, I always wanted to know, you know, in the game, when you're driving around, there's, there's mountains off in the, in the distance. And I was wondering if I could get there, but I kept getting killed by the super tank. So never a chance. And I used to, have, there was a uh, vending company down the street from me, um, masterminds. And they uh, used, I remember they used to have sales and they would sell the the battle zones for like, if I remember correctly, it was like 50 bucks or something. It was was really cheap and I should have picked one up, but um, unfortunately I didn't have that kind of money as a kid. So So as far as the game goes, I gave it a a graphics, a seven out of 10, Um, but I'm a little torn. Um, Where they did their best to simulate the vector graphics of the arcade version, um, you just aren't going to match the resolution of rast- uh, with raster graphics. Um, and that's where I feel the game suffers since the resolution is so low, it makes it difficult to identify targets, um, from obstacles. Sometimes, um, the vectors, um, also offered levels of brightness with the lines where the raster version is only just one single, um, um brightness. I suspect the They're using uh, graphics mode 8, which gives you a very exceptional resolution, but at a loss of color and hues. Other than that, it looks very close to the arcade, minus the volcanoes. Uh, For sound and music, I gave it a 9. I know there's no music, but the sound is pretty darn close to the arcade, and I can't ask uh, more than that. While other games might have superior sound, we're going for similarity here, and I think that um, they did a pretty good job of that. But here's the thing from what I can tell from the coin-off version. I, um, it, too, also used a single pokey. And so I would expect the sounds to be um, pretty darn close to the same um, as the arcade version. So is that, I don't know if that's cheating or not. <laughs> so it's possible due to ignorance that I'm being unfair. But at this time, my score will just have to miss the perfect 10. As far as gameplay, I give it a 7. I like Battlezone. Um, now, I couldn't vouch for exact authenticity. But from what I could tell, it's practically the arcade version at home. Here is my issue. Because of low resolution, I just don't find it as fun as the original uh, version. I found myself not really playing it for that long. As far as presentation, I gave it a 5 out of 10. The box art is lazy. Um, It's the same box art image from the 2600, the ST, and Lynx versions. There was no 78 version, but um, if there was, I bet I could guess what the cover art would look like. Um... It's the shot of the tank is reminiscent of the arcade cabinet art, but other than the tank and the explosions, uh, you don't immediately notice the enemy tank and the enemy fighters. Um, One of the fighters is even shooting at you, but Battlezone uh, doesn't have any fighters, so I don't know why they slipped those in. The manual is what you expect from the XEGS. Um, It's pretty bland. It's just no color. Um, but you know, they're all like that. I really miss the arcade battle zone intro. Uh, this one is kind of bland and other than the rainbow color of the text or the title battle zone, it's just black and white. At the very least, I wish they could have just rotated the tank around a little bit. So, Now, uh, Ken Rose, the programmer, also did Desert Falcon and Countdown, and I do see similar artistic ability. So. so overall, I give it a score of 7. I think that they did the best to represent the arcade version. But due to the lower resolution, I think that um, I would have ended up finding another uh, vehicle-based 3D shooter, such as like Dimension X. Um, that one comes to mind. As far as having it uh, for your collection, it's the classic Battlezone and um, would be one of those games that uh, maybe people visiting would expect to play um, out of your retro collection. So I I suggest getting it. What about you, David? What did you think of the game?
1: Well, Michael, you know, I played this in the arcade. The vector graphics were special back then and using the twin sticks for control and placing your head into that scope was real immersive back then. But with this game, for graphics, I gave it a 7. Decent vector graphics, although objects can get muddled together and may make knowing if the enemy is in your line of fire difficult. For sound and music, I gave it an 8. Good job at capturing the sound effects from the arcade game. For gameplay, I gave it a 7. Very basic. Aim, fire, and get a, get the hell out of the way. <laughs> Not much more than that. Uh, I did bump into that invisible boundary quite a bit. But try level five uh, if you want earlier enemy diversity and more frantic gameplay. Presentation. I probably should have given it lower, but it's too late. I wrote six. I gave it a six. The box is what we've all come used to getting the standard blue XEGS box with a colorful front game illustration the back of the box has a screenshot and description and as per usual the cost cost saving mono colored instructions but overall i give this game a seven i just remember i'm very nostalgic about this game i just remember you know going into those arcades And seeing this huge machine there with the periscope, it's not a periscope, but it reminds me of a periscope. (laughs) It's a scope, Mm -hmm. but you know, and the two twin sticks and it was a great game. I mean, honestly, I mean, if you, if you can't own the original arcade version, which most of us can't, you know, this is your second choice. But yeah, I mean, in my fantasies, I walk into my office and Battlezone is there (laughs) on free play, of course. Yeah.
0: Well, as far as external reviews, all I could find was Atari Mania. They had a 7.7 out of 10 with 88 votes. So let's move on to our second game. That would be Gato, uh, published by Atari USA in 1987. The model number is RX8090. It's a sub-simulation. Sorry, a Simulation C, but I think sub-simulation sounds better. Developer was uh, James E of Xanth FX. It, uh number of players was 1 to 4, Alternate. And you also had a demo mode. Controllers are joystick and keyboard. Uh, Let's discuss the back of the box. Memo. Com sub pack orders to submarine commander. Subject, classified search, destroy, and rescue mission. You are signed to the Gato-class submarine. These sturdy vessels were the backbone of American submarine fleet during World War II. Realistic operation combined with colorful, high-resolution graphics and simulated strategies puts you in the control room in full command of a sub. Your patrol is South Pacific Theater. Your mission begins with a coded message signing your objective. Read the charts, determine your attack and torpedo strategies, assess damages, outmaneuver the enemy, and survive. Positions, course, and maneuvers of your Gato and other ships are calculated and displayed in real-time simulation. Three-dimensional object perspective in the conning tower and on the periscope screen adds even greater realism to every exciting adventure. Each mission is automatically entered into the captain's log if you return. Good luck. Since this is a simulator, we're going to be a little more extensive than our previous arcade tank shooter. Consider yourself warned. And I apologize. (laughs) So playing the game, uh, primary objective is to uh, compete as many missions as possible with your supplies and uh, you carry on each patrol. When you start the game, you're greeted with the title screen. Top of the screen shows a warship on the horizon with the words GATO, with the O being a gun sight on a ship. In the center of the screen is a f- face of a large predatory cat with green eyes. Uh, this is appropriate seeing that GATO is Spanish for cat. At the bottom of the screen, you'll see the message, World War II GATO Class Submarine Simulator. You also have the copyright from Spectrum Holobyte, 1985, as well as one for Atari. On the menu screen, you are shown a side image of your sub, below are the three options you can choose from you got normal play demonstration and history and specifications i think these are self-explanatory but um i like to mention the two non-game playing options first the second option uh, demonstration is a tutorial on how to play the game and the third option history and specification presents you with the history of the gato class submarine its specs and its impact on world war ii and beyond I'll give a little, a little bit of historic info later on in the review, but uh, check out this option for a complete overview of the ship. To start the game, after choosing normal play option from your menu screen, you'll be asked to enter the current date. Now, warning, the date format is not Y2K compliant, so it's possible putting in today's date might make your computer explode.
1: <laughs> after or, your sub, or your sub to sub,
0: Something will explode. I just remember Y2K and everything was going to explode. Things were going to fall from the sky. It was mass hysteria. After entering the date, uh, you'll be shown a game control screen. So I guess everything was okay then. (laughs) On that screen, uh, you're presented with five options. Option one is difficulty level. There are a total of 10 levels of difficulty, zero being the easiest and nine being the hardest. And default is zero. Uh, for levels uh, 0 through 3, enemy ship's movement uh, is shown on the quadrant and patrol area charts. For levels 4 and 5, movement is shown on the quadrant charts only. And levels 7 through 10, the manual states that Morse code messages are received as audio only and not printed to the screen. Of course, this is wrong. In fact, they only this is only the case for levels 8 and 9. I verified this. In this case, you could uh, teach yourself actual Morse code if you wanted to. Option two is your sound. The option just toggles sound on and off. Default is one or on. One advantage to uh, no sound is that messages received will appear much faster since um, they don't have to type out the Morse code noises. Of course, since you only get Morse code messages in difficulties eight and nine, uh, one wonders how that might work. Well, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) uh, You get the message, the sound must be activated to receive orders at the current level of play so that they thought of that. Option three is your time of day. It toggles between daytime and nighttime patrols. Default is one or daytime. Well, what's the difference? Well, at night, your viewport is completely black. No subtle outlines of objects on the horizon, just completely black. So uh, this is definitely um, ups the difficulty factor. Option four is the number of players. This option selects the player who will play next. Uh, players and are numbered one through four, When a player completes a patrol or is sunk, the new player would select this option, log their player number, and then be given a separate captain's log. And option five is reset captain's log. Selecting this option manually resets the captain's log of the player number currently displayed next to the previous option number players, or player numbers, sorry. If the player is sunk, that player's log goes down with the ship and is automatically reset. So the only reason to select this option is if you wanted to wipe your recorded score away. You can also access the screen during gameplay by selecting the tab key to check or change these options. Select return or spacebar to start or continue the game. So, gameplay. On the order screen. When the game starts, you'll receive your orders printed out to the screen. These will be listed as secret, and you'll also get the date, time, and time zone in DTG. This is also known as Military Date Time Group. If you're not familiar with date time group, it is, in this case, its format is a two digit month followed by separating slash and then the hour and minute and finally the time zone, which is always Zulu or uh, UTC time. The message will be addressed to your ship and sent by comm subpack, which I'll tell you more about uh, when we get to the history and trivia section. The memo will generally contain orders and updates uh, for your mission. After pressing the any key, uh, you'll be taken to the main control screen. This screen's top section displays your
1: view. Oh, Michael. Yes. Um. Okay, there isn't an any key. That's correct. It's a, it should be after pressing any key on the keyboard. Yeah, that's a joke. You'll be taken, right? Yes. I just wanted to make sure because uh, in case you get a listener dumb like me who starts <laughs> looking for an any key.
0: I slipped that in there. That's the. That's always a joke. Okay. Where's the any key? Where's the any key?
1: Ah, okay. Sorry. I should have interfered. <laughs>
0: that's Okay. <laughs> Um. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the main, sc- the main control screen. The screen uh, top section displays your view. If you see crosshairs, you are looking through the periscope. No crosshairs and your view is from the conning tower. Other than the crosshairs, the image is the same. The blue portion is the water and if surface, the gray area is the sky. The bottom half of the screen are your instruments. These instruments and their purpose are as follows. Depth. This is numbered to 400 feet. The dial will go lower, but 425 is the sub's crushing depth or depth at which your sub is at risk of cracking open like an egg. Speed, this dial will show you the max speed of 20 knots. You can achieve 20.5 knots under diesel power and 8.75 knots under battery power. Heading gauges, north, south, east, and west. I think we all (laughs) know how how to read a compass. Um, The manual I'm reading states the directions are listed in degrees, so north is zero, east is uh, 090, south is 180, and west is is 270. Other versions do seem to use the degree system for directions, so I can only suspect that the reason why uh, the Atari version didn't use this was probably due to uh, resolution limitations. Fuel, this shows you the remaining diesel fuel in tons. You start with uh, full at 400 and the gauge light will flash when your fuel is critically low. Battery, your batteries are fully charged at 1,000. The indicator blinks and beeps when your charge is dangerously low. You'll need to surface to switch to diesel power to charge them. When charging, the charging indicator light will, um, will light up. Oxygen indicator, This is a triangle pointer that slides up and down. You start to consume O2 at a constant rate, below 20 feet. To replenish your O2, uh, return to the surface and engage your diesel engines. Your air compressor will start and refill your O2 supply pretty quickly. Torpedoes. In this section, shows you the current supply of torpedoes you have. You start your patrol with 24 torpedoes. Your sub has four forward-facing torpedoes, each indicating with a number listed 1 through 4. When a tube is loaded, the number is displayed in pink. After emptying a tube, the number will display indicating the tube is now empty, but will soon reappear when it's been reloaded. Power. This indicates whether you're using your diesel engines by displaying the word engine or electric motor by displaying the word bat. The sound will be slightly different depending on the power source you're using, while diesel sounds more like your typical Atari engine. Uh, sound they use for engines. Batters are more like a rhythmic pop. The difference is, is pretty subtle. Damage. When this indicator lights up and you hear a beep, your sub is sustained damage. View. This shows the direction of your periscope or conning tower. The direction indicated by the arrow points to four compass directions or in ship talk, forward, aft, starboard, or port. You can return this view from other screens by hitting the space bar. Patrol area chart screen. Pressing the C key will take you to this screen. The chart appears as a five by four grid or 20 quadrants containing an islands and ocean environment. The chart will show you current position and traces your sub course as you move across the chart. The manual says by pressing C key, your trace will be cleared, but um, it actually clears out all the traces on the screen. Yet another mistake in the manual. (laughs) I'm fine, A.O.M. Once you have received your orders, you can use the chart to set course for your objective. There is no way to set a waypoint, so it's more or less a best guess, so you want to check your charts often. At the game levels 0 through 3, the subtender, which is your supply ship, and enemy ships will also appear along with their traces as they move. Both your ship and the subtender will appear as blue, so it's not inherently apparent who is who at first. Enemy ships will appear as a violet target. Islands are represented as three different green shapes. Ovals are are large islands. Cross or addition signs are medium-sized islands. And the squares are small islands. Since ships don't appear as unique shapes, some of you with certain forms of color blindness are going to suffer greater challenges. Quadrant chart screen. Pressing the Q will take you to this screen, which shows a detailed image of the quadrant you are currently occupying. If the island exists in the quadrant, it will appear surrounded by a dotted perimeter that represents shoals and reefs. It will also appear in this view as well as a trace of your ship's movement. Pressing the Q key will clear these traces. In fact, if you hit the same key to use to access the particular screen you're on, it will just clear and refresh the screen as well. So it, it, I think what it does is just as a redraw. For difficulty levels 0 through 5, your subtender and enemy ships will also appear in the view if they exist in the area. The radar screen. Press the R key, will take you to this screen. The radar screen will help you get a fix on enemy ships and islands. Enemy ships appear as a single dot, and islands appear as dots within circles. Your sub appears at the center of the screen, and the top of the screen is always the front, a.k.a. the bow, of your ship. Your radar has a range of approximately 10% wider than the that of your periscope or visual sightings from the conning tower, and can be used at depths up to 45 feet. You can actually dive, surface, and fire torpedoes while looking at your radar screen. You can clear the radar screen by pressing the R key. To the right of the radar screen, it displays your current heading, your speed, your depth, and your total remaining torpedoes. Damage report screen. Selecting the D will bring up this screen. At the top of the screen is the side view of your sub, and below that are eight areas uh, that have a potential to report damage. These are the conning room, the engine room, battery room, for Peter room, conning tower, the periscopes, yes it says plural form of <laughs> this in the manual, the fuel tanks, and the radio room. Damage areas will appear highlighted in violet on the subs diagram, and the trouble light next to the uh, name of the area will also be lit. Damaged areas may be partially operational or completely useless. If your sub is heavily damaged, your survival chances are slim, so it's a good idea to return to your subtender as soon as possible for repairs and resupply. Captain's Log screen. Selecting the L key will take you to this screen. From here, details about your victories will be displayed. At the top of the screen and below the United States flag is the label Captain's Log, followed by the player number. Below this are three columns, with the labels Ship, Tonnage, and Date Sank. Ships are listed in order of freighters, then oil tankers, transports, patrol craft, and finally destroyers. There is nothing to identify what class of ship you have sunk. Finally, you're shown a summary of ships sunk, total tonnage in metric kilotons, and missions completed. If you have a disk drive attached and a four-to-banded disk inserted, the log will be recorded to a disk as your permanent record. This feature will allow you to continue your record after you've switched off your Atari or hit the reset key. Of course, as soon as you're sunk, the log is erased, so you might want to have a backup of that disk if you want to continue. Enemy ships, let's cover what you'll be gunning for and what we'll be gunning for you. you got freighters, tankers, troop carriers, patrol boats, and destroyers. There's also a supply ship, but uh, you really don't want to shoot that uh, because that's your own supply ship. (laughs) If you do, you won't be able to repair or supply, not to mention uh, being in deep trouble with comm sub-pack. The manual states that service ships can drop death charges which in reality, I'm pretty sure only destroyers carry these. All ships are displayed as wireframe outlines on your screen. Repair and resupply. As previously mentioned, when you're damaged or low on supplies, it's time to seek out your subtender. Come up to the ship and fall close behind, matching its direction and speed. Your damage will be repaired, fuel tanks refilled, and torpedoes replaced. The controls. As with most simulators, uh, there are many controls to execute functions on the simulated vehicle. Keyboard, there are a total of 29 different keyboard commands. They're grouped into the following sections. You've got speed. Some of the number keys affect your sub-speed. One through five are your forward movements where one is for all ahead flank or the fastest speed. Nine is for all back and zero is for stop. Power. Let's you switch between diesel engines and battery power sources. E, engine selects engines and or diesel engines and B, selects the batteries. Periscope. To raise, uh, hit the shift asterisk key and to lower, hit just hit the plain old asterisk key, as well as the directions it faces. So if you want to move your periscope in one direction, F for forward, A for aft, P for port, and S for starboard. Torpedoes. To open and close the tubes, hit the T key and to fire them, hit X. Screens, since I've already talked about uh, what keys access what screens, I won't recap. As far as the other controls, you get the joystick. The joystick moves the control surfaces of your sub, which include diving planes and rudders. By moving the joystick forward, you will make the sub dive and while pulling back will make it surface. Left will move the sub to the port and right to the starboard. Since there is no keyboard controls to operate the opening and closing of the ballast tanks or pumps, I'm going to assume that they just roll these into the joystick movements to make the game a little easier to play. Um, as far as your strategy goes, um, I've already mentioned that your primary mission is, but since the enemy is out to stop you from completing your goals, there are a few strategies that you might help you. Uh, under, uh, while under attack by depth charges, make sure you employ evasive maneuvers by continually changing speed, heading and depth. Playing dead is also an option. When escaping, make sure you're completely clear before surfacing, or you might have to repeat the process all over again, but now with less resources. Remember, two things, run silent, run deep. Speaking of resources, always keep an eye on them. You don't want to be put in a position where you're uh, having to worry about that as well as depth charges exploding all around you. Aim ahead of or lead the moving targets, especially at long ranges. Torpedoes travel about 60 knots per hour, so um, it can take several seconds to get to their target. Avoid coastal waters in shallow areas. Not only you limit how uh, deep you can dive to elude depth charges, but there is a possibility that you can actually run aground. If you do run aground, reverse your engines until you're clear of the ocean bottom. When passing under a ship, allow 25 feet for your radar and periscope to clear the ship plus the draft of the surface ship. If either makes contact, you could be damaged and essentially poking out your eyes. Rapid Submarine Deployment. This option is mainly used if you're badly damaged and you want to make a fast trip back to your subtender for repairs. To accomplish this, you just select the C key to bring up your patrol chart screen and then press the Z key. A message will appear asking for the password, enter Atari, and hit return. You'll then be asked for the destination X and Y coordinates. This part is where the manual will probably come in handy, but I'll do my best to explain. The bottom left corner of the grid is position zero in the Y or vertical, and the X in the horizontal direction. Each line is incremented by 5,000. For each quadrant or cell of the grid, there are numbers 1 through 20, 1 being the lower left and 20 being the upper right. Numbers increment in the horizontal direction. Within a chosen quadrant, if you want to position yourself, it takes a bit of guesswork. For example... If you wanted your ship to be placed in the direct center of the quadrant one, you would type in 2,500 for X and 2,500 for Y, since the quadrant goes up to 5,000 in both directions. If you wanted, wanted to do the same, but in quadrant two, the X would be 7,500, while Y would be 2,500 still. You got all that? <laughs> I, I think I confused myself. No,
1: <laughs> it's a simulator. I haven't understood anything since the beginning of this review, which will be very apparent in my fake review.
0: This is this is where I I, I kind of failed in math. <laughs> uh so so for, for some of you who are familiar with newer games, uh, this this is called fast travel. Essentially, it allows you to get to a, a destination without having to go through all the you know, the time and effort to get to that point. Um, also, just like uh, games today, if you were to use this method to uh, try to escape, you can't do that. They, they, if you're within, um, essentially under attack, you can't fast travel away. You have to get, a, get far enough away where they'll allow that, that to happen. So no cheating. So for scoring, there's no real scoring system, but you could use your accumulated tonnage as your score. Also, since the captain's log gets erased, when you get sunk, it's not like you can reference the information at the end of the game. So you might want to keep track of that if you're trying to keep score. Finally, we get to the history and trivia. This is, I think, is the most interesting part of this review. Although the game takes place in 1943 around the Pacific Ocean, the manual doesn't actually mention who the enemy is. Of course, this enemy would most likely be the Japanese Imperial Navy. If it is the Japanese Imperial Navy, then um, their death charges were not very effective against American and British subs, since the Japanese didn't really realize how deep the Allied subs could dive. So unless they were caught in shallow waters, these subs were pretty safe from attack. Your orders come from COM-SUB-PAC, which stands for Commander Submarine Force United States Pacific Fleet, which is the principal advisor to the Commander United States Pacific Fleet, or pack Fleet, or FLT, for submarine matters, and that was formed in 1914. Your submarine is, as I mentioned, a Gato-class. It could reach speeds of approximately 21 knots, or for miles per hour, that's 24, 39 kilometers, surfaced, and approximately about 9 knots, 20, 10 miles an hour, or 17 kilometers, submerged. Both these are pretty close to what the game says. As far as time... It could say submerged for 40 hours running uh, at speeds of two knots or 75 days surfaced on patrol. And it had a test safe depth of about 300 feet, 90 meters. I couldn't find anything official, but it seems that 450 depth was probably a correct crush depth, not the 425 as the game says. Its complement consisted of 60 men, which were six officers, 54 enlisted men, uh, but the game says 65 total. The max range of 11,800 nautical miles, or 20,000 kilometers, at 10 knots surfaced or submerged for about 95 miles at 5 knots. In this game, your Gato-class submarine has four forward-firing tubes, which the real Gato-class has six forward-firing tubes and four aft. Early in the war, the Gotham's were armed originally with steam-powered Mark 10 torpedoes, followed by the problematic Mark 14s, and later the electric Mark 18s. All three were in service in 1943. The manual says the torpedoes travel about 60 kilometers per hour, but the Mark 10s travel about 66 kilometers per hour. Mark 14s travel at either 57 kilometers per hour or 85 kilometers per hour, then two speeds. And the Mark 18 traveled at 53 kilometers per hour. So which torpedoes you're actually using is sort of a guess. Um, the funny thing about the problematic of the Mark 14s is the problems were resolved by the end of the war and stayed in service until 1980. Uh, the Mark 18s were only in service till 1950, and the Mark 10s were phased out in 1945. The Gato-class submarine armament was one 40-millimeter Bofors, oh, sorry, Bofors anti-aircraft cannon, one 20-millimeter uh, Ehrlichon anti-aircraft cannon, and either a one 3-inch or 76-millimeter, 4-inch, 102-millimeter, or 5-inch, 127-millimeter deck cannon. So there are lots of options for this <laughs> to shoot other ships with this uh, submarine. Unfortunately, your simulator, uh, the simulated version, does not uh, come armed with uh, cannons. Even the side image does show a deck cannon on it. These submarines were cost around 6288248 cents. The Gatto class um, were preceded by the Macro class and succeeded by the Balio class in 1943. 77 of these were completed Twenty were lost, fifty-seven were retired, and six preserved. At the time of the game's production, the USS Gato, a 594-class nuclear submarine, was docked at the New London submarine base in Groton, Connecticut. If you're ever in Galveston, Texas; Manitowoc, Wisconsin; Cleveland, Ohio; Buffalo, New York; Mobile, Alabama; or Muskegon, Minnesota—no, that Michigan—I mean Michigan, right? Uh, feel free to visit one because that's, that's where they're stored. So the legacy of the game originally released in 1984 on MS-DOS by Spectrum Holobyte, as previously mentioned, and ported to other systems like the Mac OS in 84, Apple II, and the C64 in 85, and the Atari ST in 86. A port of the 70 version was evaluated by Atari, and several prototypes have been found, though they show only a series of still renditions of various screens in the game. One of those people is Tempest on Atari Age. On the thread he listed out all the images. I also found a short video on YouTube showing some of the screens and it looked better than the XEGS version. Where can you buy this? Video61 has it for $29.94, no package info. Best Electronics, $29.50, no packaging info but shows the box cover. Bravo Sierra Computers, brand new, $30. US PNC Computer Vision, their eBay page, New inbox, $29.95 plus $5.50 shipping. On eBay, many uh, from Just Cart to Inbox, some pretty decent prices. So look here first. Uh, also, Amazon, sold by Game Express Online, had it for ooh, $69.95 plus $3.99 shipping. That's a little high. Okay, we got through that. Woo! So let's review this game. So as previously mentioned, I love simulators. And although I don't remember playing Gato back in the day, I did play a lot of Silent Service by Microprose. Um, As far as the rating goes for graphics, I gave it a five. Other than the title screen, I think most of the graphics are mediocre. You see screen elements actually drawn onto the screen. For example, it takes about a second for your Periscope view to be completely displayed. This might not sound like a much, but with something like Silent Service, where the screens draw smoothly when you navigate between them, it's it's kind of it kind of stands out. Your day patrol target view screen consists of a few dials, a flat sea, and a gray sky. No clouds, sun, waves breaking on the surface of the water. I give it a break if the view was limited by the periscope, but you're given the entire screen. I mean. They could have even had different weather that would affect the, the view distance or something. I mean, if you can give the 2600 version clouds, you can do it The this game. The Night Patrol is just a black viewport. Um, I would have hoped for some stars, the moon, some of the moonlight reflecting off things, the viewport, or even a silhouette of the ships on the water. Or like so many ways to represent this mode, and they just give you one with a black screen. Um, just seems lazy. The screen with maps is also pretty basic. I really didn't like uh, that your ship and your subtender were the same color. Uh, your radar screen is basic but gets the job done. I actually wish they had um, put this on the main view screen so I'd have to keep going to a different screen to navigate. It was, I mean, maybe they did this for realism, but I just thought it was annoying. For sound of music, I gave it a two. Um, I like the concept of Morse code and the sounds, but um, as the text printed on the screen, of course, uh, this is. Only when you receive messages, so it's very appropriate, but every time you go back to that message screen, you'll have to sit through the same Morse code typed out message. It's I saw the message already. I don't need to hear it again. Um it just didn't make sense to me. There was no way to see it, the entire message without seeing through the entire Morse code thing. So like for instance if I want to just push the space bar to get through the message and ignore the Morse code, doesn't allow you to do that. So um, you'll get tired of that uh, beeping real fast. You'll turn the sound off. Unfortunately, when you turn the sound off, it turns the sound off of the entire game. So, um, you know, other than the engine noises, the torpedo whoosh, and uh, that annoying Morse code beep, um, it's less than spectacular when it comes to sound. As far as gameplay, um, I give it a five. I'm not really happy about several things in this category. Uh, you only have four positions of the periscope. As previously mentioned, the Night Patrol is just a black screen, uh, i guess if you wanted to use this to practice like navigate by instrument then you could do that but nah um in fact the patrol time frame is either one or the other the atari is completely capable of simulating sunrise sunset so y- you could even simulate this passage of time so i mean like I could see like it's getting to evening and then, oh, the sun setting. Look at that beautiful uh, sunset. Nope, nothing. Uh, didn't come with any deck guns. Four forward facing tubes instead of the six that the real sub have with as well as the four in the aft, like a real gato. Uh, when the fire torpedoes, you do hear a firing sound, but I would have liked to seen something like maybe the wake of the torpedo going across the water. Um, I did look online to see if this was something I should expect, and yep, there's film of actually a torpedo being fired, and you could see the torpedo going on the water, its little trail going. So that was definitely they could have done that. When the depth charge were dropped and damaged me, I only heard the damage warning, no explosion sound. Presentation, uh, actually give us an eight. The game has an excellent demo, making the instruction manual almost unnecessary, almost. But the manual did have a few errors, as previously mentioned, but it covers the game pretty well. I thought the title screen was very cool looking. Um, they used a version of this for the box art, which I think is also not too shabby and worth displaying on somebody's wall. Overall, I give the game a five. If you're going for that true sub simulator, sound service can't be beat. So ignore Gato. The game wants to be a simulator, but isn't quite um, an arcade game either. For an Atari title, this is very mixed bag. And this is the result of it being a port of a CGA PC version. When I tried to see what else the developer did, James Yee, um, I found that he he was involved with MIDI Maze, but his role at that time was business manager, owner of Xanth Software. So Gato might have been his first and last game he developed. In fact, a post I found uh, was quoted as to say that James Z, the non technical founder behind MIDI Maze in Faceball 2000, was a visionary guy. So, although Atari Mania has James as the only programmer, it's possible he was just just the guy to head up the team. If someone uh, out there has more information on James, please let us know. So, whew. Ah, oh, man, I need to take a break. What about you, David? What'd you think of this game?
1: Well,. <laughs> Uh, Now that I'm recovering from PTSD (laughs) after your very in-depth review. Yeah, maybe too (laughs) in-depth. I just want to say, listen, guys, I'm going to let all the listeners down. I'm going to pull a bill, okay? I tried. I read the instructions. I tried playing this game. I was ripping hair out of my half bald head. (laughs) After curling up in the corner and sucking my thumb, I finally said, okay, you know – this is beyond my pay grade, but <laughs> somebody more qualified obviously has to review this. And thanks to Michael, <laughs> he did a fabulous review. Ooh. But I But I do have some thoughts. Okay. So one, for graphics, I didn't like the initial Gato load screen. I think the radar and the control panels were nicely done. When it comes to sound and music – The Morse code sound effects are ear piercing, (laughs) so I suggest you turn the volume down, which will make getting messages at later levels problematic. Gameplay. I did actually manage to get some traveling around the map and fire a few torpedoes at non-existent fish, (laughs) as I could not for the life of me figure out how to get where the actual enemies were presentation i do like how the programmers of the game use real examples of subs and naval ships in the game all in all you know i guess i'm just not up to the task of playing a you know 1980s 8-bit simulator so you know i'll go run back and play my galagon (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Wizard of War, where all I have to think about is go one direction and shoot. Oh. But anyway, uh, I'm sure somebody out there enjoys this game. <laughs> That's all I have to say about it.
0: I'm going back in my corner now. It just just shows us how far we'll go to the lengths to just have a simulator on, the, on these computers back then.
1: <laughs> now, we did get some external reviews. So on Atari Mania. Uh, this game got 7 out of 10 with 16 survivors. I, I mean votes. <laughs> <laughs> Antique Magazine, Volume 7, Number 5, page 13, issue September 88. The author, David Plotkin. There was no number score, but David says. This is a different David. He actually was a guy who could actually figure out how to play it, not me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> He finds having to use both the keyboard and the joystick together awkward at first, but most keyboard commands are mnemonic. The graphics are adequate, but the ships and the islands are quite limited. Each ship only has a few different views, making movement jerky. The torpedo hit graphics could be improved, and the sound is limited. His main complaint is the target's range isn't available, making it difficult to judge how much to lead your target when firing torpedoes. On the plus side, he says the game is quite playable, with strategic planning an important part of each attack and getting away from the enemy attack can provide quite a challenge. He likes the quick travel feature and the ability to save your info to the captain's log. Overall, he thinks the game was a lot of fun. Well good for you. (laughs) Okay. From video from Video Games and Computer Entertainment Magazine, issue two, page twenty-seven, Jan Feb, 1989 issue. The author is Howard H. Wen. Again, he gives no score, but this is what he says. Graphics are good, but nothing special. He notes the simple wireframe graphics. Howard warns arcade fans to look elsewhere, but says it's a welcome addition to the Atari XCGS line and highly recommends it. Two people who love the game. (laughs) As Forrest Gump would say, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Okay, so off we go to users' feedback we were happy to say that we actually did get some feedback and we actually gave you a long time to get it in. Mm. Okay, so from Matthew Martin, Aka Mattsoft. Michael has met Matt a couple of times and purchased a couple of Atari 800s off him. Matt writes, Hi, guys, love the podcast and listen to every episode and re-listen and re-listen and (laughs) re-listen until a new one comes out. Okay, I added that. Recently listened to the latest podcast on Gauntlet and Dark Chambers and thought I'd share some feedback since it sounds like you didn't get much or any. Even though I owned an Atari XL back in the day, I never played either of these games on an Atari 8-bit. For reference, I played the disc version of Gauntlet and the cartridge ROM of Dark Chambers on an FPGA Atari 8-bit. Mister, I've heard of that. Title screens on both were very nice. I'm a sucker for the Atari 8-bit scrolling gradients used in the Gauntlet logo on the title screen, plus the music was a little better. So I'd give Gauntlet the slight edge there. I feel that Gauntlet was much easier to play mostly because of less enemies and more open dungeons. But Dark Chambers had much tighter control, which made killing monsters much easier even though they took multiple shots to kill. The firing was faster and had a more satisfying sound and feel, while Gauntlet had smoother scrolling. Dark Chambers had more detailed graphics. I also liked how Dark Chambers, when you shoot the monsters, they would change turn at each shot until ultimately dying. Our second user feedback is from Eugenio Aguera. Eugenio says... Like most people, I've played Gauntlet in the arcade and on 16-bit platforms, but had never played Dark Chambers on Atari 8-bit or 7800, and ended up really liking Dark Chambers even better than Gauntlet. Another great Gauntlet clone is on the Amiga. Yes, I know it's not really an Atari, but made by the father of the Atari J-miner, so it really is an Atari in Commodore clothing. The game is called Garrison. And its sequel is Garrison 2. If you have an Amiga or an Amiga emulator, check it out. Greetings, David and Michael. Okay, well, thank you so much for your feedback. Hmm. Now, Eugenio gave us uh, an additional feedback, but we're going to save that for the next show. Because, you know, we want to spread the feedback out because we get so much of it. (laughs) Now, Michael. Yes, Back to you.
0: (laughs) Yep. Well, I think that's about it. We wrapped it up. I hope everybody enjoyed this. Sorry for the length of this, but nobody tends to complain about the length, so we're just going to continue on. Um, But I hope you enjoyed the show, and uh, have a good one, David.
1: See you later. Bye. In our next episode,
0: we take to the skies during World War II and battle the Axis Powers to become the Ace of Aces. Then the Federation needs you once again to take on the invading Xylon Empire in Star Raiders 2. You can find our latest episodes, news, and information on our website, www.xegs8bit.com. We also have links on there, so you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd like to thank ComputeHer for giving us permission to use her song software as our show's theme song. You can visit ComputeHer at ComputeHer.com. That's ComputeHer.com for more information. Also, thanks to the folks who contribute to and maintain the Atari Mania database, Wikipedia, and other fine results of Google searching. We are part of the Throwback Network, a group of podcasters with one thing in common, we all love old things. Whether it's old video games, old movies, old toys, or simply old stories, the Throwback Network is the place to find them all. Visit throwbacknetwork.net to learn more. The Dow uh, will go lower, but 2 425 is the sub's crashing depth, or the depth that the sub is at risk of cracking open
1: like an egg. You said crashing depth. Yeah. Cru- crushing depth.
0: Oh crap! Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Crushing okay.
1: depth. Yeah. Good. Or is it another one of those uh, no nope. tricks? Uh, <laughs> to get our listeners befuddled.
0: Nope. You're right. Okay. We we'll try it again.
1: Past XEGS hosts. Oh, Host. It's only one guy. Okay. Hold on a second. <laughs> Why isn't he back on the show? <laughs> come on, jeez, it's not like it's not like. Come on, we record like once every six months. Uh, you think that like is that too much to ask? Okay, anyway, I guess anyway, so. Is, I'll be for the bloopers anyway. Okay, and yes, Bill, you, we need you back on the show. We need your, your documenting skills. <laughs> Get back now, okay. Yeah.